Welcome to High Techies Podcast. I'm your host, Pramod Takal. In the High Techies Podcast, we talk to a lot of entrepreneurs and leaders who are trying to solve the worldly problem. We talk on various topics from starting a business to finding funds to hiring and managing people. But most importantly, we talk about the actual problems they are trying to solve. There are over 6,000 cryptocurrencies and the market size of the cryptocurrency space is over $2 trillion. And yet, it is still not considered mainstream as the knowledge about the whole cryptocurrency space is limited to a small percentage of people. Even if someone has understanding of the blockchain and crypto, it is still not enough to put your child inheritance money as investment. In order to understand the whole evolution of the market, I thought it would be interesting to invite some of the leaders on this space who has deep knowledge and experience as investors. Again, none of the discussions with my guests can be treated as an investment advice. I'm curious about the industry and I want to believe a lot of my listeners are as well. Now, on this episode of High Techies Podcast, I have with me Paul Gambill. Paul is the CEO of Nori, a starter reversing climate change and is active in some of the most ambitious decentralized application and digital project out there. Paul, welcome. And uh, thank you, uh, Paul, for joining this particular session. Um, I I went through your website, uh, nori.com, and uh, and that was quite quite. I was quite fascinated by by you looking into uh, the greener side of cryptocurrency. Um, yeah. As soon as we talk about cryptocurrencies, we are talking about um, the 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 electricity consumptions and the way uh, we are creating. Um, uh, let's say the cryptocurrency itself. Uh, how did you sort of you know get into this? idea phase you know uh where yeah. you said okay you know this is what i'm gonna do next you know this is how i'm gonna um pursue the dream that i have in terms of changing the way people view cryptocurrencies uh-huh well um it started for me in 2015 but i'll back up a little bit before then so i i studied computer engineering in my undergrad and then i got my master's in engineering management um afterwards and then i came to seattle where i live now and i was working in software primarily for different agencies that were building mobile apps um uh, Deloitte Digital was the the biggest one. So we were building mobile apps for Fortune 500 brands. And then um, around 2013, 2014, a lot of these bigger companies started taking their mobile development in-house, which made sense. Like prior to that, it was kind of a new novel thing. And then it became more commoditized. And the work sort of got really boring and kind of dried up. So I decided to leave consulting in 2014. And I... I, I left in the fall of that year and I had started a, a couple of different businesses that didn't really go anywhere. One was a subscription box um, based business and the other was a uh, like digital iOS stickers thing. Like these weren't really, you know, these weren't venture startups, that kind of thing. And in 2015, I was trying to sell that subscription box business because it hadn't really grown much. And someone pointed me towards uh, Simon Sinek's TED talk about it starts with why. 
and it's a fairly famous one. A lot of people have seen it. And I was thinking about that and then thinking, okay, what do I want to work on next? What's going to be like bigger and more important than like the previous business of just like putting stuff in a box and sending it to people. And I settled on two different potential topics. One was, um, AI and like, especially AI risk, um, because I've always been sort of interested in and um, dabbled in like the effective altruism community and they, they care about like existential risks quite a bit. And the other was climate change. And I was thinking about it because um, I had read this magazine article about how climate scientists were becoming very depressed because no one was listening to them. And I got very curious around like, how do you how do you actually solve climate change? Like, can we just make this go away? Because I'm I'm sick of the the partisan political bickering over it and the constant inaction that we see. And it just it just seems like it's this large looming thing, but no one knows how to get started or solve the coordination problem. And uh, and I was uh, coming out of that that subscription box business. I had been working alone. And that actually, that was a bigger motivation that more than anything was that I just really missed working with a team of people, a team of really talented people who all supported each other and made each, you know, we were better as the sum of its parts. And um, I figured, well, climate change is a big issue that a lot of people care about and a lot more people are going to care about in the future. So I bet I could attract a lot of really talented people to come join me if I decided to work on climate change. Um, so that was how I got started in wanting to do anything there. Um, when it comes to crypto, I uh, first learned about Bitcoin in 2010 when I was in grad school um, from a professor. I have no idea how he knew about it. And I don't really remember exactly uh, <laughs> like anything that he had said about it. It was, we were in this like a uh, workshop um, where they were teaching us about how market trading worked and he was using Bitcoin as an example. And I was coming from a space of uh, being like a fan of Ron Paul and uh, his ideas on monetary policy. And I had been like, I think I was, I was 21 or 22 years old. I wasn't, um, and so I was thinking about how uh, that how it just kind of sucks the way that governments control and central banks control monetary policy and how that's kind of a root uh, issue that causes a lot of um, other problems for society. And then I went home and I read the Bitcoin white paper uh, that evening and I just thought, holy cow, this is this is the thing. This is the, the solution to all these problems. And it was very obvious to me at the time. Um, so I started mining Bitcoin afterwards. And then uh, I got really excited when Ethereum came out because coming from a software background, then I was excited about the, the ability to program applications on top of the blockchain and what could that enable. And so that was my, I had these like parallel interests and passions in 2015 and 2016. And in 15, I started a meetup group to meet other people who were interested in carbon removal and figuring out how to solve climate change. Because back then, uh, like maybe, maybe you've heard the term carbon removal today, but back then no one was talking about it. We didn't even have the term carbon removal. We were often calling it carbon capture, which is actually something different. And, uh, 
by uh, the end of 2016 from this meetup group, we had met basically every other group in the world that was working on this because there weren't that many. And we'd spent a lot of time reading books and white papers and articles and such. And we started to come to the conclusion that, okay, this, this actually isn't like a deep tech problem like I thought it was going to be. It's more seeming like it's an incentives problem. Like there are lots of ways to pull carbon out of the air. Um, we're just not doing them. And then in late 2016 was when we started to see more tokenization projects happening on Ethereum, like Augur and Gnosis and um, and Golem and that kind of thing. And uh, then that was a, a light bulb moment for me, like, oh, here's this, this this one thing I really care about. And what it's missing is a financial incentive. And here's this other thing I really care about that just so happens to be a technology that creates financial incentives. So let's put these two together and then we can use the, the tokenization concept to create a new incentive for people to pull carbon out of the air. And then we'll let market forces figure out what is the most efficient and effective way of pulling carbon out of the air. And that should help us scale up. So that was the, the kind of genesis and how those two things merged. Uh, you know, uh, I was looking at, uh, you know, uh, there are different incentives for business, you know, you mentioned a little bit, uh, you know, on your website as well. Now, can you, can you maybe, you know, uh, explain on, on, on the practicality, let's say, you know, uh, I'm a business owner and, um, you know, I use X amount of power every day and how do I, mm -hmm. how do I help support this initiative? You know, how do I, be involved with Nori or, or how does this even work? Yeah, a lot of businesses have uh, just recently decided that they want to do something around carbon. They want to be carbon neutral or carbon negative. And um, they're doing so because they're being pushed by their customers or by their employees or by their shareholders. But in general, those, there's like a cultural push to become more uh, sustainable and carbon friendly. And a lot of them don't really know how to do that. And that's actually not something that we do. Um, there are uh, lots of other businesses. Um, we've partnered with some who are helping these companies with carbon footprinting, figuring out what is the amount of carbon that they're responsible for emitting and what can they do about that? How can they decarbonize that and reduce it? But then also recognizing that it's basically impossible to get to full net, like you can't remove all of your emissions. It, it, that's as true at a company level, it's true at an individual level, and it's true like economy wide. So our company tagline is emit less, remove the rest. Um, and, and remove is, I, I want to call that out too, because um, in the carbon offsetting space, there are types, there are projects that avoid or reduce future emissions. So they're saying, because we're doing this thing, there's less carbon that's going to go up in the air than would have otherwise happened versus carbon removal, which is what we do. And that's saying, I'm going to do this project and it's going to actively pull carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and we're going to store it. So on net, there's going to be less carbon in the air than there was previously. And um, so emit less, remove the rest. Um, so for these companies, um, we often work with these partners who help them figure out what their carbon footprint is, and then they can purchase uh, carbon removals. We call them NRTs, Nori removal tons, uh, where one NRT is one ton of CO2 removed and sequestered. And uh, we, on the supply side, we're working with farmers who are adopting regenerative agriculture practices that end up sequestering about half a ton to one ton per acre per year. Um, so they go through a, a whole measurement and verification process with third parties coming in and verifying it. And then uh, they can sell those NRTs to the customers who are mostly businesses that are trying to negate their carbon footprints. 
Ah, okay. So your job is to build uh, kind of like a marketplace, right? It, it becomes like yes. a marketplace in that place. Um, mm -hmm. And then you say you go to farmers to farmers and you identify where the carbon footprint is. You sort of publish on your platform and, the, you know, any businesses come and say, oh, I'm, I'm going to take a, a share of that or I'm just going to buy that or whatever, right? That's the way it works? Yeah. Think think of the carbon as a commodity um, where uh, it's like a consumptive good. So you emit X amount of CO2. So then you come buy X amount of NRTs and now you've removed the carbon that you emitted. Uh, it's like buying your karma, right? So I don't know you know, <laughs> if I'm putting it in the in the right way. You know, so, it's like buying what? Uh, buying your karma, right? So you've you've done something, mm. uh, <laughs> or in a way. I, maybe maybe think of it more like um, paying for garbage or waste removal. Um, uh, maybe, like. Maybe. Yeah, car carbon is a waste product and we can't see it and we can't smell it. But I yeah. guarantee you that if we could see it or smell it, like we, we wouldn't be in this situation today. Yeah. Uh, because like in, in developed countries, like we have really robust uh, waste collection services. They're often at the municipal level and it's just a part of everyday life and it's built into the cost of doing business. So if you go into a restaurant and you produce a bunch of waste from you know, eating your meal there, you don't, you're not going to get a separate garbage removal line item on your bill afterwards. It's just going to be part of the cost of it. And carbon hasn't been included in that because no one's been really accounting for how much carbon is being emitted. And then they've never really had before uh, recently the ability to pay for removing it in the same way that you would pay for your garbage bill. So uh, that's what we're trying to build here is the financial infrastructure that makes it possible to do all of that at scale. Because what we're what we're trying to build is really something that's going to plug into the background of everyday life. Like the, the way people approach carbon offsetting today is often on an individual basis or just companies thinking about it from like a karma basis, like you described, but it needs to be more just automatic. This is a, a service that needs to be provided. And it's just something that everyone should, uh, is, is just built into the background of everyday life. One thing that you mentioned is is the automation part, you know, where you say, okay, this is what I'm doing as far as the pollution is concerned. Now I'm going to offset this by, you know, uh, the, the equal amount. Um, and how, how do we keep track of those things? Like how much am I polluting versus how, my, how much am I going to contribute, right? So how do I keep track of those things? Well, that's... Uh... It depends on what we're talking about. So for instance, like you could imagine taking like an Uber or Lyft ride and that's like fairly straightforward to yeah. approximate how much carbon is being emitted from that ride and then just remove it as part of that ride. So it's happening on a one-to-one -one basis in a, in a very like small transaction that I believe that that's going to be much more scalable than the way companies currently do it is at the end of the year, they kind of total up an estimate of everything that they've done. And then they go out in a big lump sum and buy that many offsets. Uh, that opens up more potential for error and all sorts of other weird stuff. So it should just be as carbon is being emitted, it's also being removed automatically. And the more and more that our world runs on software and applications and APIs communicating with each other, the easier that becomes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I like I like the 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 fact that you know, uh, you know, it is like a marketplace, and 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 it's, yeah. it's kind of interesting. Like uh, you know, based on based on your your you know initial uh, 
uh, origin story and then now where you are now. Where do you think you are in terms of the vision that you had when when you started this company? Well, we've taken an approach of getting to market by focusing on just getting the carbon side of the business working from end to end. And we have that now. So we we work with farmers, they sequester carbon, it gets quantified through a, a third party that's open source and peer reviewed. And then a third, a different third party verifier comes in and verifies that the farmer is actually providing accurate data. And then we can sell the NRTs to buyers. The buyers pay for that uh, in cash uh, at a fixed arbitrary price right now. And to date, there's been almost 60,000 tons removed and paid for. So farmers have been paid out just about $900,000 from that. So we've got this proof of concept working pretty well. The next stage of what we're doing is going to start introducing the crypto layer to this because really the the problem that we're trying to solve is uh, what is the market price for carbon? How do we enable true uh, price discovery happening so that buyers and sellers are willing are figuring out like what is the actual value of this product that's being transacted? And we haven't done that yet because we wanted to get the carbon working first. And so the next stage of the business is launching the Nori token, uh, which um, I, sh- I should back up and say, we have two assets. So there's the NRT, which is the carbon. And then when the NRT is sold to a buyer, it's immediately retired, uh, which is carbon market language. That means um, it's no longer available for resale. It cannot be transferred anymore. That buyer owns it forever. And we're doing that because we're trying to solve a very pernicious double counting problem that has plagued every single carbon market uh, or every, every carbon offset uh, that has been created. And then the buyer pays for one NRT with one Nori, uh, the Nori token. And the price of the Nori will fluctuate just like any cryptocurrency, and it'll fluctuate based on supply and demand, but it's pegged to that one ton commodity product. And um, launching that is the next major milestone. And to me, that's like, that's why... Like this was a this was always a crypto uh, company trying to solve climate change, and so we're finally getting to that point of yeah. uh, becoming that. So that's what I'm really excited about next. Mm-hmm. So in in that regard, you yourself would be also uh, you know contributing to that, right? So it's not like because you cannot create a clean crypto yet. If I if I understand the the the, the space, it depends um, on what what chain you're on. Uh, we actually do work on Ethereum, which is yes. still operating on proof of work. And um, that'll that'll go away once the merge happens sometime next year. Um, but I think at that point, what we'll do is just, it's uh, not that difficult to calculate up all of the transactions that we've run uh, in the past. And then we'll just remove that amount of carbon. And then it should be good to go from there. Because uh, at that point, the energy usage on Ethereum will be basically negligible. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's good that you know uh, you're you're thinking about you yourself are, are contributing to to offsetting the carbon footprint uh, as a company. Maybe uh, then that that would be a uh, perhaps a role model for other companies uh, and and saying hey, see what what we are doing now. You know, um, yeah. and you know in terms of reach, you know, in in terms of reach so far, like let's say the uh, the collaboration with companies and and you know let's say um, more and more companies perhaps are onboarding with you uh, how do you see the growth you know based on um, you know let's say uh, last couple of years versus now like where you are you know in terms of growth 
Well, the, the important thing to understand is that fundamentally carbon and carbon offsetting is supply constraint. Um, there is nowhere near enough supply in the world uh, to meet current demand, and there will likely never be enough supply to meet demand as it grows. So just to give you some numerical context, um, we emit as a planet globally about 50 billion tons of CO2 equivalent every single year. And the total number of carbon credits ever created is somewhere between four and six billion tons. Mm -hmm. We don't know the exact number because of some double counting problems, uh, but it, it like let's assume it's five. That's only 10% of one year's worth of annual emissions, but this has been going on for 20 plus years. Uh, another just interesting piece of evidence is uh, companies like Microsoft, as I said, they want to spend a billion dollars on carbon removal. Amazon and Apple have combined to commit $300 million, but those last two have had to partner with the Nature Conservancy and Conservation International to build out new forest restoration projects because they can't just go buy that amount of carbon off the shelf. It does not exist as a commodity product that they can purchase. So this is always going to be a uh, supply constrained uh, market. And so for, from Nori's perspective, like that's the hard part is how do we get enough supply coming in? And we are agnostic to the different methods of removal. There are sort of nature-based solutions like uh, soil carbon, planting trees, growing kelp, like seaweed. Um, and then there are more industrial approaches like uh, direct air capture, uh, incorporating CO2 into construction materials like cement. Um, and uh, soil has the largest scale of opportunity right now, which is why we started there. Um, but these industrial ones are happening at a much, much, much smaller scale, and they're still pretty expensive. So we're, we want to be a marketplace where people can propose new methods of removal to us um, in an open source sort of way. It goes through some peer review process, and then uh, they can onboard and then start running projects and selling their NRTs through that. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's always going to be a challenge on the supply side. Mm -hmm. And, and so what is the incentives of people like who already has, let's say, a solution to like, you know, offsetting carbon footprint, uh, you know, maybe some, some, some ideas are there already existing. And do you, do you onboard them as a partner or do you also onboard, let's say the business owners, like as a partner, like, how do you, how do you, let's say, marry those two, two, two uh, you know, companies? Are you talking about on the supply side? On the supply side, let, let's say, you know, somebody has uh, already created, let's say, a solution, let's say, you know, mm -hmm. which is, let's say, you know, uh, for example, you gave an example of cement and, you know, raw materials mm -hmm. as such, you know, somebody has an interesting solution as such. Do you also onboard those providers as, as, as someone like who's upsetting carbon on their own? Do you onboard them as well or just the companies who wants to buy the marketplace, you know, uh, buy the carbon? Oh, footprint? I see. Yeah. So uh, companies that are doing carbon negative cement, uh, those would be suppliers in our market. Yeah. Yeah. And then and then buyers that are trying to negate their carbon footprint would be the, the buyers uh, on buyers, the demand yeah. side. Um, the, uh, on the supply side, when somebody has a new method to propose to us, what we need is some sort of scientific evidence that shows mm -hmm. that this is actually happening. And, and, and then we have like a provable, verifiable way of measuring the amount of carbon being removed. Mm -hmm. And that's the like tricky, difficult part that a lot of different um, organizations are working on right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, because I thought like, you know, it, it cannot be that just you uh, doing something and then 
you know, you are not onboarding the supplier and then that cannot be true. Right. So that's why I, I wanted to just throw that out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like right now working with the farmers, um, it's, we've developed a whole bunch of uh, a pretty large network of people working with us, but a lot of the onboarding is happening through what we call data managers. And these are often other agricultural companies who are providing software services to farmers to help keep track of different operating data about what's happening on their fields and in their land. And they're the ones who, those data managers are the ones who are interacting with the Nori platform and getting the farmer data in there. So yeah, it, the onboarding process is, is a really, really big component of that. And it's, it's also a, a place where uh, like software can continue to improve that and um, bring economies of scale. And, and in terms of value that you are adding uh, as far as, you know, uh, creating a Nori token, uh, you know, what is the intrinsic value that you can think of, you know, um, you know, uh, you know, in the context of Nuri as an ecosystem, I would think of. Yeah, well, okay. Why don't I explain the history of carbon offsetting and how this has worked? Because um, it's not something that um, even people working in the space understand all that well. Mm -hmm. So going back to the late 1990s, the Kyoto Protocol was adopted at the UN level basically every major country except for the U.S., uh, committed to uh, reducing their, their national carbon footprints by purchasing carbon credits from developing countries. And the, the idea here was this should be an equitable wealth transfer. Like we're, we're a developed country because we've burned all these fossil fuels and used all this energy to get to this point. And we live these nice lifestyles. And who are we to go say to developing parts of the world, like, okay, there's a climate problem now. So you don't get to burn all the energy. Like that, that's radically unfair. So the, the notion was these developed countries would pay the developing countries for carbon reductions happening inside their borders. But then that changed in 2015 when the Paris Accords were adopted. And so now every single country has their own emissions reductions targets. The way this played out in the early 2000s was uh, a bunch of different um, private organizations uh, respond. So there are carbon offset registries. These are um, basically maintainers of databases of serial numbers representing the carbon credits that are, that are created. And these registries develop uh, what they call protocols. And a protocol just lists out the rules for how you're gonna measure and verify. And we do something very similar at Nori, we call them methodologies, but it's basically the same. And these registries are nonprofits and they charge all of their, their fees, uh, which is their revenue on the supply side. So they charge registration fees, listing fees, transaction fees, consulting fees to help develop uh, protocols for specific projects. And that means that uh, project developers can end up spending somewhere between 30 to $100,000 just on the carbon credit certification process, not including their actual like capital expenses and the operating expenses from doing the project itself. So it's, it's a very high barrier to entry on the supply side. And then uh, what happens is they'll get issued carbon credits and then most of the time they'll sell them to brokers uh, because there is no, it's funny, we use the term carbon market, but there is no such thing as a carbon market. Uh, you, uh, this is not like an open and transparent thing that people yeah. can go to. And it, there's certainly not like liquid uh, trading going on in a way where we can see it as an actual price. So they work with brokers who then try to find them buyers. And oftentimes those brokers might sell to some other broker. And so these carbon credits are going to trade like multiple times over. And there's a concept in carbon offsetting of retirement, which means 
you're, you're saying I'm the end buyer of this carbon credit. I'm going to retire it and make, make it so that it can never be sold again. And I'm going to take final credit for it. Okay, great. But actually very few carbon credits actually end up getting retired. And most of the time they're just being pushed around uh, by different financial traders. And it doesn't really make a lot of sense to me. If we're going to be really serious about climate change, we should be designing our system so that every new dollar spent on carbon results in net new carbon coming out of the air. Um, if the, that second sale, the third sale, the fourth sale, that money doesn't end up in the hands of the original project developer. It's just going to a financial middleman, which just drives up transaction costs and reduces the amount of scale of carbon projects that, were, that are happening here. So I view that as a double counting problem. It also exposes different vectors for fraud. Um, where uh, you can have like say a big oil and gas company buys up a lot of carbon credits and then they make a big announcement saying they're being uh, better for the planet or whatever but then those carbon credits sit as an asset on their balance sheet and if they want they could then sell them and potentially even had a profit and then at that point is their environmental claim like actually valid did they actually offset that carbon i would argue no because they've relinquished ownership of those carbon credits uh the other problem is when it comes to international accounting literally every single credit that has ever been sold across international borders has been counted more than once so if a project happens in brazil and then it gets exported to a buyer in France, both Brazil and France are going to count that as an emissions reduction relative to their Paris goals. Brazil says, hey, this project happened inside of our borders, so it's our emission reduction. But then France says, well, we imported that carbon credit, so we get to take credit for it. It's a really stupid problem. It's easily solved with double entry bookkeeping, but they don't do it. And this is actually, uh, so uh, we're recording this just before the uh, COP26, the next uh, conference of the parties, uh, conference that happens at the UN level. This has been the major sticking point ever since Paris, which is how do you deal with this double counting problem? And it's more or less Brazil that keeps blocking it for political reasons. Um, so with these double counting issues, uh, th then there's also, I should mention fraud too. So in the late 2000s, uh, there was a um, uh, project called the Chicago Climate Exchange in the US. And this was a carbon market specifically for regenerative agriculture. So very similar to what Nori is doing today. And you would have cases where uh, related entities could trade carbon credits off book with each other. And so say you sell me 100,000 carbon credits and we agree in the contract that it's going to be at $1 per ton. But on our books, we're going to mark it to market uh, meaning at the market price. So let's say the market trading price is $14. So we're going to report it as if it was a $14 per ton transaction, but we actually only transacted on $1 per ton. Mm -hmm. And if you are a speculative trader or someone else doing analysis on the market, or you're, all, you're participating in the market by buying or selling, and you see the report that it was trading at $14, well, then you think, oh, okay, there's there's trading volume, there's demand for this product at $14, but it's a lie. Mm -hmm. And that was what ultimately collapsed that market. And that happens because they're able to trade the carbon credits over and over again. So knowing these issues, double counting and fraud and so on, at Nori, we're doing something very different and unique from every other player in this space. What we do is we enforce immediate retirement. So when a buyer purchases the NRT, the Nori Removal Ton, 
it goes in, it's actually an NFT, a non-fungible token that gets recorded on the blockchain and it goes yeah. into their wallet and it's made non-transferable. So they can never resell it. And in exchange, they'll pay one Nori token. Mm. Uh, the Nori um, always can purchase one ton. The price it will fluctuate based on supply and demand, but it still always purchases one ton. So think of it like a gift card for a ton of CO2. By separating out these two assets, we immediately solve the double counting problem because the carbon cannot be retraded. We ensure that every time someone buys an NRT by buying the carbon, they're actually paying the person who did the carbon removal work. And we also create, uh, it create a tradable commodity asset that we can use as a reference price and so that people can speculate on that So uh, as commodities traders do. And uh, it can help bring in more capital, help with business forecasting, and ultimately help with price discovery. Um, so this two-asset, two-token model is what's unique about us and what we're trying to um, change up the way that uh, carbon finance works. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I like the I like the fact that you you uh, you explain me the the <laughs> the background, you know. Otherwise, I would be mm -hmm. like only asking about why why Nori token now. You know, there are already so many tokens out there, <laughs> right? And th there are a lot of tokenized uh, carbon projects out there, but all that they're doing is tokenizing existing carbon credits that have come through these registries, which have all, I mean, they still have those huge barriers to entry for the supply side, and they're still just trading the same ton of CO2 over and over again. So, um, unfortunately I think there are a lot of attempts at like crypto carbon tokens that are really just perpetuating this old system and aren't like they're acting as if this is a demand side problem, but that's, that's not the case. This is not a demand side problem. It's a supply side and double counting problem. Mm -hmm. And and how did you identify there was a challenge as such? Like what led did you, you do that particular conclusion that, okay, this mm -hmm. is, there is a challenge in this particular space, you know, on, on, on the, let's say that you are using the term double accounting, uh, yeah. often, so, uh, you know, in, what, 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 how did you get to that conclusion? You know, so in early 2017, there, there was a guy in the meetup group that I started in 2015, who was a carbon offsets um, person, not quite a broker, but working in the space. And he was telling me uh, about it. I was trying to like, actually, before starting Nori in this meetup group, one of the things we were talking about was, hey, maybe we should collectively like run a carbon offset project. We could start generating some revenue from that and we can use that to build into a business that's focusing on carbon removal. And he, I, I was wondering, like, how big is this market? Like, how much money is being transacted and spent on carbon credits? And he pointed me towards basically the only uh, market analysis uh, report out there uh, by a group called Forest Trends. And it's called State of the Voluntary Carbon Markets. And uh, I was looking at this report and I was trying to understand the market volume. And they have a nice little diagram in there where they show uh, for 2016, the total amount of money transacted on carbon credits. Now I, I should point out, they only have numbers for this because it's based on self-reported surveys. This is still how it functions today. So mm -hmm. self-reported surveys is obviously going to miss lots and lots <laughs> of different transactions. Like it's, it, that's not actually that useful. Yeah. Um, and so like having this for us, having all these transactions happen on the blockchain makes it trivially simple to report up for transparency purposes. Anyway, in this report, they break out the market volume by primary sales and secondary sales. 
And primary sale is when the project developer sells the carbon credit to the first buyer, whether that's a broker or an actual like end retail buyer. Secondary sales are anything that happens after that. And I was looking at this and I was wondering, what the hell? Why, why are we tracking? Like, what are secondary sales? Like, why why are these? These shouldn't be sold more than once. Uh, that's ridiculous. Like, the whole point is to pull carbon out of the air. Yeah. Uh, so that, to me, was the the first time I was like, this this is so stupid. Uh, th this is creating a financialized product that maybe that's good for Wall Street, but that's not necessarily the most efficient way to do this for the planet. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a great catch. Uh, you know, otherwise I was like thinking like, how, how did you get to that point? You know, uh, because nobody thinks about that, you know, honestly, like, you know, for me, you know, right. and nobody looks into those reports and, and identifies, okay, there is a problem, you know, so. Right. And the, the unfortunate thing with carbon stuff is it's all very, very opaque. And that's another reason why we want to put this on the blockchain, because then it, it, the, we can pull this out into the transparent light and people can start seeing and evaluating and uh, making business decisions and investment decisions based off of actual market data, not just, you know, surveys. Surveys. I, I send out every single week, you know, for nothing, you know, so... <laughs> But if you could, I mean, well, actually, that, that's a good example. So if you send out a survey to your listeners and you're asking your listeners, like, hey, what kind of content should I be producing? Do you like these episodes and so on? Like, that's cool. But how uh, that's, I mean, that's good information, but it's definitely not as good as actual data analytics on yeah. like downloads and listens through and, and so on, right? And the, we're doing the exact same thing here uh, by mm -hmm. the analytics are just built in on chain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, 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 you know that that makes sense because then then I'm not going to put an effort into uh, really understanding my listeners, you know, and uh, you know the analytics does the rest, right? So yeah, yeah, yeah. And and what's what's the future? Do you see like you know after you you mentioned about uh, the tokens, uh, you know, you want to go perhaps the early next year, uh, if I, if I heard you correctly. <laughs> Yeah, uh, hopefully soon. Um, hopefully within a few months. Um, yeah. There are a lot of really like, I've never seen any other crypto project that has taken the same approach that we have, where we've basically built out like a fully fledged real business first, and then we're launching the token, but the token's been the part of the plan from day one. Um, so there are some like tricky challenges to overcome around like how, how we're getting our suppliers onboarded and transitioned into this new method of getting payment because uh, previously they've been paid in cash. And the same goes for buyers too. Like buyers of carbon offsets are traditionally used to paying like a fixed fee per ton. And that might be a fixed fee guaranteed over several years. Whereas we're going to be moving into something that's going to fluctuate in price on a daily, even hourly basis. Um, so dynamic pricing is a little bit different. So it's thinking about like which types of customer segments should we really be targeting right now? Because they're going to be more comfortable with that. So there are those sorts of uh, things to work through um as well as just like the general technical engineering side of things yeah and and you you pointed out a very interesting one like you know uh you know onboarding the supplier and then paying them and um you know do you want to pay them on the token that you are created yes. or and how do, yeah and, and how do you convince them you know i i wonder they, they are technical uh suppliers 
Yeah. So, so yeah, that's, that's like a, a really great question. The far farmers in general, I will say are very tech savvy, a yeah. lot more tech savvy than people think they are. Oh. And, and they're also like very familiar with commodities markets because that's what, they, especially if they're selling grain products, like that's, that's their livelihood. Um, so this, this is very similar and it, and it should come across as similar. Now, the, one of the issues right now that we see is that, um, suppliers of carbon are wondering about like they're seeing a lot of hype uh, around carbon and thinking okay um i should be able to like this is going to be worth a lot more like the carbon that i'm farming into my farm into my soil uh will probably be worth more in five years than it is worth today because there is so much interest in this and they're coming to us and saying hey can we just go through the measurement process but then not actually sell my nrts i want to wait and sell them when they'll be more valuable mm -hmm. But the problem is buyers don't want to buy old carbon. Um, there's a concept of vintage associated with offsets, which is the year in which that carbon was removed. And buyers want to buy more recent carbon because they want to feel like the money that they're spending is having like a real impact in changing behaviors. So to the farmer, we say, look, when you get paid, you'll, you'll get paid one token per ton that you sell. And if you think that the carbon price will be higher in the future, then just don't sell your token yet. Mm -hmm. Sell it later when you need the cash flow or when it, it hits a price that you're happy with. Um, and the same thing actually applies on the demand side too. Like it's a way to hedge against future carbon price increases. If you believe that the carbon price is going to be higher in the future, then, and you know that you need to offset like a hundred thousand tons per year for the next three years, then buy 300,000 tokens on the open market. And now you've locked in the price that you've paid uh, for carbon. And then you're using those every year uh, to buy the carbon that you need to. So savvy, uh, participants on both the supply and demand side will start to understand and figure out like the advantages that that opens up for them, which is a little bit different from the current way of transacting in offsets. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I really hope uh, that, you know, uh, the farmers won't uh, be scratching their head and say, hey, what do I do with these tokens? You know, they're just giving Well, that's away. where <laughs> software user experience, I, I really hope that too. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, so uh, because you are in this space, I want to a little bit ask you, um, you know, uh, about your, your uh, you know, thoughts on the whole evolution of this crypto space, you know, because like you said, you, 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 you were introduced to the uh, Bitcoin in 2010. Now, you know, we are in 2021. So, you know, how do you see the evolution? And, and, and when you dream about this particular space, what do you really see? Well, I think, I think that uh, when it comes to carbon, we mostly see attention paid to governments and really large businesses, big enterprises like Microsoft and Amazon and Apple, like I mentioned earlier. Uh, but I was describing that I think this is going to be more effective when it's built into everything in everyday life in the background. And I'm really interested in... Uh, models of crypto governance, as well as how uh, crypto community building can help drive and incentivize more carbon removal being happening. Because basically, if uh, we're, we're trying to create this whole ecosystem where people on all sides are able to make money, make a, make a profit off of a carbon removal service that's good for the planet. And uh, like, there are lots of ways that people are going to use this that I don't even, I can't even predict right now. Um, 
like one one idea we're thinking about at the moment uh, is that like there's uh, been a huge explosion in interest in NFTs this year, and especially yeah. art-based and community-based NFTs. And so one thing that we're thinking about is uh, about uh, basically like letting people mint and create new Nori NFTs. And maybe they have something to do, like maybe it's art, generative art, and it has something to do with the environment or the planet or climate change or whatever. And in order to buy an NFT, you have to, or, or sorry, in order to mint an NFT, you have to buy a certain amount of carbon, a certain amount of NRTs. And then does that make that NFT uh, more valuable to that user if they uh, remove more carbon uh, mm-hmm. with it? So um, how can different uh, gamification incentives like that drive more carbon removal purchasing is uh, something I'm really interested in. But then how do you how do you promote that saying, hey, you know, this is this particular NFT has offset X amount of X ton of carbon. Is that is that how you want to approach that? Uh, kind of. Yeah. And how, how do we do that? I don't really know yet. This is something that we uh, are still working on and thinking through. Um, but it could, I don't know, it could be built into the art itself somehow. Like you could say that like a lot, what a lot of NFT projects these days are doing is incorporating um, different potential uh, rarity of traits, in, especially regenerative uh, NFTs. So that you could say that uh, the more carbon that you buy, the more rare traits there will be in there. And, uh, and maybe that could be visualized or quantified somehow. And since it's all happening on chain, like it, it, this is metadata that can be attached to it somehow. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Interesting, Paul. Um, you know, everything that you said, you know, are, are quite interesting in the, the mission that you have is pretty noble at the same time you know it is current right so it is it is like you know the the need of of present uh at the same time you know you are using the present technology in order to really uh connect at the same time tell a story so this is this is really been an interesting conversation with you um I'm, i'm i'm kind of curious about how do you see uh, the future of Nuri other than the token? You know, I, I'm kind of curious uh-huh. about that part as well. Well, to date, we only have the one methodology, which is working with farmers doing soil carbon. So I'm really excited about when we start to add new methodologies. And yeah. like the, fir- the first time that someone comes to us and says, hey, because we saw like how much money we could make by selling carbon through Nori, we came up with this new way of removing carbon. When it, w- like whenever that happens and it's going to happen, uh, <laughs> that's, that's going to be like really validated. I'm going to feel really good then because that's the whole point of what we're trying to do is create this market incentive for that. So what's the future of Nori? We want to see billions of tons of CO2 being removed and transacted upon through our marketplace. We want to be uh, indirectly uh, or even directly responsible for influencing new carbon removal entrepreneurs, uh, for inventing and creating new methods of pulling carbon out of the air and, and ultimately get to the point where we can all say that, okay, this climate change thing, like we we solve that problem. Not, not just Nori, but I mean, like as a planet that we can say like, yeah, climate change, we fixed that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I would be very excited to talk to you again in the future as well. Uh, but uh, this is already a great start. You know, when I saw this particular project and I was like, wow, like, you know, this is interesting. Uh, I'm, I'm excited about your, your company and also the future of Nori. Well, thank you. I very much appreciate that.